Let me uh, read the verses that I'm just going to focus on from Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Who am I? Part two. Who am I? Part two. This is, this is part two this morning of a six or seven, or might even end up being an eight-week series on Who Am I? And if you were here yesterday, or if you were here on Christmas Eve, and you were here to ask that question, who am I, then I hope that the answer that you would have been able to give is, I am the worst sinner saved. Who am I, part two? Who am I, part two? I am, we'll fill that blank in by the time that we're finished this morning. Now, as I said a little bit earlier, wow, it's December 26th already. Christmas seems to have almost gone. And wow, we've got another 364 days to go until another Christmas. And I need to confess to you this morning, here's my confession, I had no idea what Boxing Day was all about. In fact, I've never had any idea why we celebrate Boxing Day and from the little survey, it's quite clear that probably safe to say that most Aussies don't know either. However, it is safe to say that Boxing Day for Australians, by and large, is the following. One, shopping. Two, cricket. Anybody know the score already? No, don't, answer, don't say anything. 29 for two. Um, Yachting, Hobart, Sydney to Hobart, or Hobart to Sydney, whichever way it goes. Thank you. you didn't even, and you didn't have a clue what Boxing Day was about. And it's about movies, movies. Safe to say that Boxing Day is not being used in its original context. And the same things happen with Scripture all the time. Scripture is often taken and not used in its original purpose. And perhaps one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture which falls into this category is Isaiah 55 verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. I became a Christian uh, at the time when memorizing verses was all the thing, it was super important. But when I memorized this verse, and it was one of them, it wasn't drilled into me quite uh, as strongly as the need to understand the verse in context. Because you can go through your whole life, even for 30 years, thinking that you know a verse, you've memorized a verse, you've used a verse, and you have absolutely no idea what it means. Or you think you know what it means, but you actually don't. 
And I want to say to you that I had no idea, though I'd memorized it for 30 years, what that verse actually meant. And when I finally understood it, which was fairly recently, there was something of an uproarious joy in my soul as Scripture comes alive. Imagine memorizing a verse for 30 years and not really understanding it. Imagine, imagine having Christmas every single year of your life and not having a cooking clue what it means. Excuse the pun. Imagine, imagine going to a carol service, carols by there or carols in there, and having absolutely no idea what's going on. We do need to be careful with, me, uh, with memory verses, don't we? How about this one? Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. How many people, Christians, have used that verse to really encourage themselves when only two or three people pitch up to a prayer meeting? But actually, when you look at the verse in context, it's all about church discipline. What it's saying is that when two or three Christians get together and they start deciding what to do about an unrepentant, unconfessing a, a sinner, Christian brother or sister that's, that's sinning continuously, then, then whatever they agree on, Christ agrees with them. There's an agreement from Christ. Here's another one. Psalm 46 verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I mean, how many Christians have used that verse to try and console yourself, comfort yourself, soothe yourself when you are so busy, right? Ooh, you're so busy, you're rushing around, you're going here, you're going there, you're chasing the turkey, the tucker, the everything else is going on, and, or you're rushing off to some sort of Christian thing that you've got to do, and it's sort of be still and know that I am God. In context, the writer is urging the enemies of God to stop striving against God. He's telling rebels that the rule of God cannot be beaten. And he's telling rebels that the God of the Bible is the real God of war. So, how about Isaiah 55, 8 and 9? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts and my thoughts than your thoughts. So for 30 years, here's what I thought. I thought that my thoughts are not your thoughts actually meant that God just doesn't do things the way that I want him to do it sometimes. You know, you sort of plan something, you want something, you desire something, you want it to go in a particular direction, and God in His mysterious providence changes the plan or doesn't do what you want Him to do, and you go, my ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts, God. Have you, just for a moment, have you found that in your relationship with God? He just doesn't do things the way you want Him to do things? I mean, our thoughts and our ways are not quite God's thoughts and God's ways when it comes to COVID. Hey, I never forget a personal example of where I, I understood this verse in the sort of providential context where it became super alive for me. It was uh, around 2003, uh, Belinda and I had moved from Durban in South Africa to Port Elizabeth, and we were in a position now to make an offer on our first house. Oh, it was so exciting. And uh, it was a time when houses were bargain price. I'd read the market. The market was about to explode. I get this house. There is a hefty profit in the making. All I needed was for my mom to sign surety on that document. 
It was house in the bank. It was money in the bank. It was mum in the bank. And voila, my mother refused to sign. And I remember consoling myself over and over with Isaiah 55 verse 8. My ways are not your ways, Lord. My thoughts are not your thoughts. But this verse has got nothing to do with divine providence. Nothing. But I am very grateful that God soothes the soul with verses taken out of context. Because God is bigger than that. So, here we go. Three three headings to take us through and understand Isaiah 55, 8. And I hope by the time I'm done, there will be something of an uproarious joy that comes into your soul this morning. So let's start with a startling condemnation. A startling condemnation. If you're going to understand Isaiah 55, 8, you've got to go back into the context. You've got to go back into verse 6 and 7 where we start to understand what it means. And here's what it says. Seek the Lord while he may be found. So my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, God says. My thoughts and ways are higher than yours. Here's the context. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Isaiah is talking to the people of Israel. Isaiah is talking to to God's chosen people whom he has taken from all the nations of the world to be his own. He's talking to the nation that he rescued from Egypt. He's talking to the nation that he took from Egypt, rescued them by a mighty hand, then took them through the Red Sea, rescued them again with a mighty hand, took them, gave them the law, the prophets, the kings, gave them the whole lot, the promised land. He's talking to the nation upon whom all the covenant blessings fall. And do you notice that little verse 7 there? Can you see the startling condemnation? Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. This is so startling. He is calling Israel wicked and unrighteous. You see, the fact that God saved Israel from Egypt, from the cruel bondage of the Egyptians, and gave them the law, and gave them the prophets, and gave them the land, that does not make them righteous. Israel is a wicked nation. That's what God says through Isaiah. And then just in case we're not sure that it's talking about Israel, if we went back to the beginning of the book, Isaiah chapter 1, which is the broader, broader context, look what Isaiah says. Woe to a sinful nature, a nation, he's talking to Israel, a people whose guilt is great. They're a brood of evildoers. They're children given to corruption. They've forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel, and they have turned their backs on Him. You see, and that's why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 writes this. And he's reflecting back on Isaiah. And in Romans chapter 3 verse 10, he said, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is not 
one person, even among the privileged nation of Israel, not one person, no Jew, no Gentile, who is good enough, worthy enough to be saved. No one. So if this morning at the very start here, we, um, we had to ask the, uh, the question, who am I? Who am I? The answer is this. I am wicked because of my sin. Because of my sin, I am unrighteous before the Holy One of Israel. In other words, if we really wanted to practice Psalm 46 verse 10 a little bit more closely, be still and know that I am God, what we would do well to do is to be still this morning and contemplate our wicked, unrighteous hearts because of sin. That we might with Isaiah reflect that our whole head is injured. Our whole hearts are afflicted. Like Jeremiah, our hearts are deceitful. We are rebels, every single one of us. There is not one of us, not even one, that is righteous enough to earn their way into heaven, to be saved, to have a relationship with God. This was true of Israel. This is true of every single nation. This is true of the Australian nation. This is true of you. Can you see it? Can you see it? Can you see Israel is wicked? Can you see the nations are wicked? Can you see Australia is wicked? Can you see that your own heart is wicked? But here's the thing with Israel. They would not accept the assessment. They just would not have it. When the prophets came again and again and again and said, you're a wicked nation, they wouldn't have it. They just wouldn't go with it. They would not accept that they were a wicked nation like the other nations who deserved to be judged for their sin before the Holy One of Israel. Take a look at this. Here's Isaiah's assessment of Israel in Isaiah chapter 30. For these are a rebellious people. They are deceitful children. They are children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to seers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way. Get off this path. And stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Tradition has it that the prophet Isaiah was sawn in two. He was cut in half by the godless, wicked king, the Jewish king, Manasseh. Why? Because he kept on confronting Israel with their wickedness. And when the Holy One of Israel came in the flesh... When Jesus Christ came and he confronted the Jewish nation and he confronted the Jewish leaders, exactly the same thing happened. They wouldn't have it. They would not deal with the assessment of the startling condemnation. Let me show you what I mean. A little snippet here. Let me show you a little interaction between Jesus 
and the Jewish leaders. And this is where it starts in John chapter 8. And Jesus says to them, and you can go back and look at the context. He's talking to the Jewish leaders. He says, then you will know and the truth will set you free. Here's how the Jewish leaders responded in verse 33. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of, everyone, of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus follows it up in verse 34. Very truly, truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And their response in John 8.39 is, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says to them in verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil. Jesus' assessment was a startling condemnation. And I wonder this morning whether that is for you. Is this startling? Is this a startling condemnation that before the Holy One of Israel, you are wicked? You are unrighteous. Do you accept it? Do you really Accept it. But from a startling condemnation, we go to a staggering compassion. A staggering compassion. Now, let me ask you this question. If you were God, what would you do with wicked Israel? If you were God... What would you do to a nation to whom you were so kind, so gracious, so loving, so everything to them, but they are sinful, habitual, repeat offenders of your holiness? What would you do to Israel? Where do habitual criminals belong? What do we do with repeat offenders? me ask you this. What do you do? How do you respond when someone that you know sins against you again and again and again and again and again and again? How do you respond? How do you respond when someone you know betrays you again and again and again and again? Is it not true that no matter how much you love someone, when that person spurns your love again and again and again and again, there comes a point where you go, no more, I'm handing you over, I can't deal with it, go away, get out. You see, our hearts are what? Our hearts are tit for tat. Our hearts are tooth for tooth. Our hearts are eye for an eye. Our hearts are payback, revenge, retribution, our hearts have a line. So let me ask you again. What would you do if you were God? What would you do with an incurably wicked, unrighteous, sinful people? What would you do? You'd hand them over to their sin and you'd wipe them from the face of the earth. That's what you would do. You wouldn't give your son for them, would you? 
You wouldn't give your only begotten precious son for the lives and the souls of wicked people, would you? If you were God, would you give your only begotten precious son, would you give that for an incurably wicked people? Would you give your only son for people that had spurned your love and your grace and your mercy and your kindness so many times? That is what God does. Take a look. Turn back into Isaiah 53, the shorter context. That's exactly what God does. But He was pierced for our transgressions and He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him and by His wounds we are healed. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. Yet who of this generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transition of my people, he was punished. Verse 11, after he had suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. And halfway through verse 12, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And the suffering servant of Isaiah is none other than who? The son of the living God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 1 John 4 verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through Him. The suffering servant, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is none other than than God incarnate, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Let me ask you again. If you were God and you were faced with an incurably wicked nation like Israel, would you give your righteous, precious, beloved, only son to die for that nation? Would you do that? And look what happens. And look what happens. Look what happens when wicked people turn to the sinless, suffering servant who was pierced, crushed, and bruised for their sin. Look what happens. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways, the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord. Here it comes. If wicked people turn to the suffering servant in the Lord Jesus Christ, He will what? He will have mercy on them. And to our God, and he will freely pardon. When the wicked, verse 6, seek the suffering son. When the wicked, verse 6, call on him. When the wicked, verse 7, turn to the suffering Christ, what will God do? God will freely, freely pardon them, forgive them, and show show them his compassion. Wicked, sinful, godless, unrighteous, sick, 
sinners are sent the righteous, sinless, godly, holy Son of God to suffer and die for their sins. And if they would turn to Him, if they would know who they are, and they would know the suffering Son and what He had done, God will freely and fully have mercy on them. He'll pardon them and He will forgive them. I think now, perhaps, we'll understand verse 8. See, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways. Your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The reason why God's thoughts and ways are higher than ours and not ours Because unlike us, God is ready to pardon. He wants to fully forgive perpetually wicked, unrighteous sinners who would turn to His Son in repentance and faith. God's ways are not our ways, and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts because that's not what we would do. We don't freely pardon. We do not fully forgive. We do not show unmerited grace and favor to those who repeatedly sin against us. Let me show you a little verse. It's Psalm 103, verse 11. And, and you've got to put these sort of two together in the Hebrew and you sort of figure some things out. But it says this, Psalm 103, 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so is His love for those who fear Him. And, and when you put Psalm 103, 11 with Isaiah 55 verse 8, here's what we get. Isaiah is saying that God's thoughts and God's ways of love and compassion and mercy and kindness and grace and pardon and forgiveness is beyond absolutely anything we could imagine because He freely gives it. He freely gives grace, pardon, forgiveness. If you went back into the Old Testament, there was probably no greater act of wicked defiance and sin than Israel when they went to worship the golden calf. Do you remember that? Isaiah, not Isaiah, Exodus chapter 32. So Israel, they've been rescued from Egypt by the mighty hand of God. They've been then taken through the Red Sea by the mighty hand of God. They, 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 they go up to Sinai and, and Moses goes up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights to get the, uh, to get the laws of God. And, and when, when Moses is up there, the, 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 the nation of Israel decides to throw a party. And they start to worship a golden calf. They get drunk out of their minds and they start to indulge in all forms of sexual immorality. And at the very, very height of this wickedness, the very height of this rebellion, Moses falls on his face before God. He says, God, you've got to show me who you are. You've got to reveal yourself to me. Show me who you are. And God grants that request. He grants him that request. And he takes Moses in Exodus 34, and I'll show it to you in a moment, and he puts him in the cleft of a rock. And listen to what it says. As God revealed himself to Moses off the back of this, 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 this wickedness, 
God says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. What Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 55, 8, Isaiah is saying that our God is not like us. And our God reveals the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of His compassion, grace, slowness to anger, His faithfulness, His love, and wickedness towards wicked sinners by giving us His beloved Son something we would never do. Who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's a startling condemnation, isn't it? It is a staggering compassion. So thirdly, a saving Christmas. In all the hype and the hurry of Christmas, in all the misguided shopping, cricket, which we'll be watching later today, yachting, movies of Boxing Day, I wonder if there might come for us Something of an uproarious joy because it's a saving Christmas. She will give birth to a son. And you ought to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Listen to how the Apostle Paul put it in Galatians chapter 2.20. He said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Here it comes. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Christmas Day, Boxing Day, is a saving day. In fact, Hebrews says, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says, every day is the day of salvation. Every day is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Every single day. Because today you can seek the Lord and find Him. Today you can call on the Lord and He will heal you. Today you can forsake your wicked ways and your unrighteousness and turn to the Lord and He will have mercy upon you. He will freely pardon. He will extravagantly forgive your sin. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. 
See, God's ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts because He wants to save wicked people who come to Jesus. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous but the sick. He didn't come to call the righteous but, but, but sinners. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's, it's, it's the sick. And here's the thing. People then turn around and say, oh, I'm too bad. I can't come to God because I've been too bad. <laughs> Those are not God's thoughts. Those are not God's ways. He wants the wicked and the unrighteous and the ungodly and the sinner to come to Him. And He wants to forgive freely, abundantly, profusely, extravagantly. That's what He wants to do. That's His heart. That's the heart of God. And again, just as we dip back into the Old Testament, look at Micah chapter 7, verse 18. This is why the prophet says, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You cannot stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. He delights to show mercy. He loves to show grace. He rejoices to pardon freely. And does it at a level that we can barely imagine. So as I start to sort of close up this morning, there is a startling condemnation on your life. It is startling. But there is a staggering compassion in Christ where you, where you will receive the full forgiveness, the full pardon, and the full mercy of God if you would, be, if you would but turn to Him and call on Him. And believe on Him. Jesus. Emmanuel. God with us. I want to close with this. I want to give you, a, I want to give you one final picture. It's a biblical picture. And what this picture does, it brings all three aspects together in the same passage. The startling condemnation, the staggering compassion, and the saving Christmas. One passage. Do you want to see it? I hope so. Have a look. Luke 23. Luke 23 from verse... 38, and I've put a little parenthesis, and you'll see where it's going. Jesus is, is, has just been hung on on the cross. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the precious, sinless, righteous Son of God. And it says in verse 38, There was written a notice above Him which read, This is the King of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Him. Aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. 
See it? Here's the startling condemnation. But this man has done nothing wrong. The sinless servant. The sinless son of God. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Repenting and a turning and a calling on Jesus. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. The mercy, the pardon, and the forgiveness of Christ. This wicked man sought the Lord while he could be found. He called on Jesus while he was near. This wicked man turned to the Lord while hanging on a cross. And Jesus fully, abundantly, profusely, extravagantly, lavishly forgave him, pardoned him, showed him mercy. Have you done that? Have you done that? Who am I? Let's sing.